you want to find your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Pretty powerful, Yuri Lopez. This girl received just a little shoebox from uh, a girl, maybe it was a girl like one of the girls in our church uh, who had been packaging and putting together that shoebox. That's pretty powerful. I mean, like for us, it's like the shoebox deal. That's a, a year-round activity. We're always gathering stuff. We have sometimes parties at our house with all these people just kind of packing shoeboxes. And, and with that girl, she wrote like just this little note. Remember that? Jesus loves you and, and so do I. And that had an amazing impact on Yuri's life. I'll tell you, what happens in our lives is that there's just someone that has an influence in our life for the gospel, helps us understand Jesus, helps us start to grow in our faith in him. And it's kind of like the the domino effect. You guys ever done that domino thing where you kind of stack up all the dominoes and you stack them up and you just push one, right? And it pushes another and then to another. And then pretty soon you got dominoes going everywhere. That's called the domino effect. There is a parallel in our own spiritual lives. There's a domino effect that has actually got started about 2,000 years ago with Jesus. And he invested in his men, the apostles, and for 11 of them, and the Judas obviously is off the scene and, and another comes and takes his place, it starts off and it starts small, but their influence begins to influence others. And this has been going on now for about 2,000 years. And as of today, there's about uh, 7.3 billion people on the planet. 800 million of them would identify with Jesus Christ as both Lord of their lives and Savior from their sins. But I'd like you to think about your role in all this. Who are the people that influenced you? So thinking of that domino effect, who is like one person that influenced your life? Maybe it was a a coach or a parent or a grandparent. Maybe it was... um, a pastor or a youth pastor, a Sunday school teacher, maybe it was a neighbor, a co-worker, maybe it was a student when you're going to school. Who influenced your life for the gospel? Kind of pressed into you, helped you grow and understand. And I'd also like to ask you then, who is it that you are making an investment in? Who are the people that God is using you to influence? And friends, you need to understand this because this is how spiritual multiplication takes place. It is what we could call the divine domino effect. And how does that actually happen? What does that really look like? How does ministry multiply? And if you want to know what it looks like, best case example, if you've got 1 Thessalonians open, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 and following, it spells it out with great clarity. This is the divine domino effect. So how does ministry multiply? Well, first... I want you to draw your attention to verse 5. It takes place when our personal faith becomes and goes public. Okay? So that's what happened here in verse 5. So in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, remember, they made their way to Thessalonica. Before that, they'd been in Philippi, and that was, that was tough, man. They got beat up, right? They got beaten, put into a jail cell in kind of the innermost cell. Uh, they were feet were put into stocks that just created all this really painful cramping in their legs. And, and yet, they were, they were used by God. In fact, we saw people actually come to Christ, and they eventually got chased out of town, encouraged to leave, and they made their way to Thessalonica. 
Have you ever thought about it? If Paul and Silvanus and Timothy never went public with their personal faith, this likely would have never happened. Can you imagine they just said, you know what, we got it really good here in Israel, we got these other fellow believers here. Life is great. But in reality, what they did is they had a personal faith that went public. That's true for you and I. And so that's what we see going on here. Look at verse 5. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Our gospel didn't come just in word, but it certainly came with words. In fact, last week we spent our entire time on this one verse and we talked about the gospel. The gospel points out that you and I are made for significance, that God has created us in his image, that we share in a limited form his his relational attributes. And we share aspects like thinking and volition, like God, but it's limited, but we're created in God's image. We reflect his character to a limited degree. And we're created to know him. In fact, there is a God-shaped void in our life that could only be filled with him. The problem is, you and I sin. We actually try to fill this vacuum with anything. So we got relationships, uh, we got entertainment, we're going to do immoral things. We are going to try to fill this void in our life. And it becomes like our quest in life to find a sense of purpose, peace, identity, security, satisfaction, relational wholeness. And we try to fill this void. But if it's filled with anything but God, the Bible says that is sin. It means to miss the perfect mark. You and I are made by God, for God, to know God, to enjoy Him forever. And guess what? We're going to pretty much do anything but that. All of that is sin. And then once you understand sin and its wages, the wages of sin is death, then you can understand this word, Savior. Christ came to take God's just wrath against sin, And literally, through the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, he enters into humanity, he pays the penalty for sin. That's the Savior. And when you and I believe in Christ, you know what happens? We experience salvation. I want to make really clear that you understand it's not just believing certain truths about Jesus that makes you a Christian. But it's believing in Jesus, his person and his work. That changes everything. And so when they brought the gospel, they brought it with their words, but it wasn't just their words. Notice what else he says. He says, but we also brought the gospel in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. They brought it also with their way of life. So they spoke of the gospel, but they also actually lived out the gospel. There was an alignment to their words, to their way of life. And that's how that's how multiplication ministry takes place. Your personal faith, and it's deeply personal, it's got to go public. And if it doesn't, it's like the whole idea of the divine domino effect, it ends with you. Somebody influenced your life, but you're not budging. You're not talking, and you're not going to live in such a way to try to influence people's lives for the gospel. You see, you and I grow, and we invest in others with our lips and our way of life. And that's what you see here. Now, you need to understand that what people think about Christianity is really probably what they think about you. I mean, our understanding of who Jesus is prior to to knowing Christ, and I I can speak from firsthand experience, is what I thought of people that genuinely believed in him and said they followed him. So what I knew of Jesus was what I knew of these people followers of Jesus and how they acted and what was important to them and how they treated God and how it affected their life and what made them different. Well, that's how it works. 
You see, when you and I, if we're going to be involved in a ministry of multiplication, our personal faith has to go public. It's kind of like this. Ministry multiplies when our love for Jesus is greater than our fears and the focus of our lives. Fear paralyzes us. The whole idea of you talking about Christ with a family member or at your next family reunion or during the holidays, I mean, that can paralyze most people, and it does. Well, guess what? We, we never put ourselves in a situation where we're influencing others because, you know what? Fear has silenced us. But when we're overwhelmed with the loveliness of Jesus, when we find that, hey, it's okay. I, yeah, I'm a sinner, and I've been saved by Jesus, and I want people to really know him, there's a freedom to engage people because he's the focus of our lives. And so that's what happens. If you and I are going to be involved in a ministry of multiplication, our personal faith has to eventually go public. And let me just ask you, has that happened for you? Has your personal faith in Jesus been made known? Do your classmates know about this? Anybody at work? Anybody in your neighborhood? In some cases, does anybody even in your family know about your relationship with Jesus and how important that is? There was an op-ed piece in the New York Times just a few months ago as a writer by the name of Nicholas Kristof, writes in the New York Times, and his, what he wrote was this. It was entitled, A Little Respect for Dr. Foster. Now, Nicholas Kristof makes it very clear in the opening part of his article that I, I am not a Christian, certainly not an evangelical Christian. And yet he writes this, quote, But I've been truly awed by those I've seen in so many remote places combating illiteracy and warlords and famine and disease, humbly struggling to do the Lord's work as they see it. And then he focuses the remainder of his writing on this one particular Dr. Stephen Foster. He's a 65-year-old white-haired missionary surgeon, and he's lived in Angola for the last 37 years. Much of that time, uh, he's done so with the Angolan regime that was Marxist and very hostile to Christianity. So like Dr. Foster is quoted in this piece, and Dr. Foster said this, we were granted visas by the very people who would tell us publicly, your churches are going to disappear in 20 years. But privately, they would say this, you are the only ones we know willing to serve in the midst of the fire. Christoph writes, one of Dr. Foster's sons contracted polio. A daughter of Dr. Foster survived cerebral, cerebral malaria. And the family nearly starved when the area was besieged during war, and Dr. Foster insisted on sharing the family's rations with the hundred famished villagers. Christoph concludes this. The next time you hear of someone at a cocktail party mocking evangelicals, think of Dr. Foster and those like him. These are folks who don't so much proclaim the gospel as live it. They deserve best better and it's really interesting i went to uh, the website for dr foster and this is what it says on the banner it says hope for angola through healthcare, agriculture education and the gospel of jesus christ there's a lot more evangelization going on with words not just the way of life but friends i need you to understand that if this ministry of multiplication is going to take place then our personal faith it has to go public. Let me tell you something else that needs to take place. You see that in verse 5, that your personal faith has to go public. But ministry multiplies when those we disciple begin to develop 
Look at verse 6. So he says, hey, this is how the gospel came. You saw what kind of people we are. We had conviction. We were operating in the power of the Spirit. We're trusting the Lord. And we spoke the gospel with our words. But look at verse 6. And you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What happened was that those that they were discipling began to develop. And they imitated, like Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, their activity, what they were doing, talking about, how they functioned. But they also started imitating their attitudes, how they handled themselves, what they, their love for God, love for the Word, love for others. And they saw that and they imitated that. Now, imitation was an extremely important component in education at the time of Jesus and in the early apostles. You and I are very familiar with kind of like a Western civilization type means of education where you basically have in a classroom or at a church someone that just talks. You could pay attention if you want. You could tune out. You can do whatever you want. Look at your phone. Or you could, you could listen closely. But you make the call. But that's not how people, for the most part, were educated back then. They were educated by watching and imitating the one who was investing in them and teaching. Because they believed that they kind of idealized what they were talking about. So this is what it must look like. And so they would follow their behavior. You see Jesus talking about this. Like he said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You learn from me. You follow me. You do things like I do it. Or Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven one, he says, be imitators of me just as I also imitate Christ. So to the degree that I'm following Jesus... You imitate my pattern. That's how we grow, and that's how we're educated. And so that's what they're doing. They're imitating the Lord. But did you see that in verse 6? They, they were developing. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. I thought that was kind of interesting as I've been studying that. Like, why did he put us first and then the Lord? Didn't he put the Lord and then us? And the reason that it appears in this order is this. What people know about Jesus, especially initially, is what they see in you. And then as they start growing in this relationship with Christ, they're growing directly from what they're seeing in the Lord. But it always gets started when your personal faith goes public and when those you're discipling begin to develop. But notice what he says. He said, verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word. And we're like, great, you've received the word. But this is the part we like to omit, especially in American Christianity. Received the word in much tribulation. We do not like that idea, right? We want everything to be fine, easy, uh, no problems. But that's not how the word goes forth. It generally grows and develops in the, in the soil of difficulty, of tribulation. And that's exactly what they were experiencing. Like, for instance, if you were a, a Jewish person... And you heard the gospel of Jesus and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. And indeed, this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And you believe in Jesus. Well, that automatically meant to all of your relatives that you were forsaking the heritage. You were forsaking the family. It created great degrees of tension and problems. Some of you experienced this firsthand. You believe in Christ. That doesn't sit well with our family. And so guess what happens? You got a lot of problems. And who's the problem? You are. Why? Because you are believing in Jesus and you're not following the family customs. Not only were the, those that came from a Jewish background experiencing this kind of tension and problem, but if you came from a Gentile background, 
and now you're like, hey, I'm setting down all these idols. There's only one true living God, and I am following and believing in Jesus. You have now put yourself at a crossroads with the culture. So, for instance, um, a person like civic peace, agricultural success, freedom from catastrophe, all of this was wrapped up in the worship of the traditional gods. And if you all of a sudden stop doing that, that became extremely dangerous to ignore and offend these gods. Thessalonica is about 50 miles away from Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus is the KOA of all of the gods, right? That's where they all hang out. 50 miles away, if you stop worshiping these gods, stop bringing incense, stop making sacrifices, and you're now saying that there's this one true living God in Jesus, you got bad crops that year, you know who the problem is? You are, because you have given up on the gods and you're believing in this Jesus guy. And that's exactly the kind of tensions that they face. You and I need to understand, there's going to be some costs to following Jesus. There's going to be some tribulation and difficulty. Paul said you should expect it in his final letter. Hey, you are, it's guaranteed to happen. Jesus said as much. John 16, 33 says, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Did you see that in verse 6? They received the word in much tribulation, but it is with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Did you see that? Difficulty, tribulation, receiving the word, pain, problems, maybe losing your house, losing your job, maybe getting beat, maybe even losing your life, yet joy. You see, Christianity presents that joy is actually not directly tied to circumstances. You and I generally think that, hey, I've got good circumstances, I can be joyful, right? Got happy things going on here, this is lining up here, I can be joyful. Not so good things happening here, this is making me upset, this isn't working out, I got an excuse to be grumpy, mad, and kicking the dog, right? We think this way. But Christianity presents that even in the midst of our pain, even with tears coming down our face, we can have joy. Why? Because we have Christ. We see his loveliness. The Spirit of God cultivates a heart to trust Jesus, that he's sovereign and that he's good. And even though this doesn't make sense, and this is hard, and this is painful, and I don't actually understand why this is happening, I still have joy because I have Jesus. And that's how they received the word. You see, what happens is that ministry was multiplying. Not only was their personal faith going public, but guess what? The disciples were developing in the exact same way that they had. They, they had. Now, um, we simply have a hard time understanding this, don't we? But when you think of the cost in terms of family and friends and society of being a follower of the way for people like in militant Hindu cultures or Muslim countries or, or in countries that are just flat out against Christianity, we see this happening today. And yet we can have joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's what they were doing. They were imitating the pattern that they saw in us and the Lord. Remember? I mean, Paul and Silas beat in prison singing praises. Does that make sense to you? Does that sound like you and me? Mm. How does that happen? You focus on the loveliness of Jesus. And that's exactly what was happening for the Thessalonians. Just a couple weeks ago, 
they have the uh, world championships, uh, athletic championships in Beijing, okay, 2015. And some fascinating stories, but probably the most fascinating story is this Kenyan by the name of Julius Yego, and he won the javelin throw, okay? Now, what are Kenyans known for in the athletic world? You guys know? They're, they're distance, that's right. They are distance runners. I mean, you look at some of these distance, I mean, distance guys, they are lean, mean machines, man. They can do a little bit more than four minutes a mile, and they can do it for like 26 miles straight, you know? It's just like, that is crazy, okay? How is that possible? They are not known for javelin throwers. And yet this guy, Julius Yeko, he really wanted to throw the javelin, felt kind of drawn toward it. Uh, small problem. In Kenya, they don't have any javelin coaches. It's, they don't do that event. They, we, we just run, like always. We, we don't you know, throw javelins. And so he found himself in this situation. And so um, here he goes. He, uh, in this interview with CNN, he said this, quote, I do not have a coach. My motivation comes from within. Training without a coach is not an easy thing. So this Julius Yego, he is completely self-taught, and he wins the javelin throw, like the best in the world. Let me just tell you how he did it. This is this will sound weird, but he did it by watching YouTube. He didn't have a coach. No one throws the javelin in Kenya. So what he did is he watched YouTube videos of world champions and Olympic champions, and he watched everything about their form and how they did it. And then he went and just imitated their pattern. He kept doing it over and over and over again. This guy's not very big. He's like 5'8". And even the announcer, when they were just kind of announcing this, it didn't, they didn't think anything great was going to happen to this Kenyan, you know? It's kind of like the Jamaican bobsledders. They're like, you know, okay, glad you're here. And that's all nice. Nice story, but you're not going to do anything. This guy just chucks the javelin. Even the announcer's like, whoa, what's going on? I mean, he just couldn't believe how far this Kenyan, who has no coach, could throw the javelin. How do you do it? He imitated. And friends, that's what happens. People, disciples start developing, and they follow a pattern. Now, as Christians, we don't have to like, sit around on YouTube and like, well, I've got to find what a Christian looks like with maturity. No, you know what you do? You get yourself involved in a local church, and you get yourself discipled, and you get yourself around other Christians in a small group, and you grow and develop, and you follow their pattern, and you imitate their faith, because, friends, that's how the divine domino effect takes place. When your personal faith goes public and those that you are discipling begin to develop. And there's just one other thing. If you're really going to be involved in the ministry of multiplication, and that is when those that we invest in begin influencing others. So did you see this? Verse 5, their personal faith became public. Verse 6, those that they were discipling were beginning to develop, right? They're doing so in the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that is promoting and developing them. But look at verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So this word example, it described a seal that had been marked, uh, that, that marked wax. Or like if you had a coin and you were like impressing it and you had this impression of the original that's where the word example, that's what the, that Greek word comes from. And so it's like the idea that it was pressed and it made the form and you followed the pattern. You see, when those that you're investing in begin to influence others, you know what we've got? We've got spiritual multiplication taking place. And he says that's what happened. So that you became an example 
like an imprint to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You are like a church that is actually doing it right. This is what a church should look like. You happen to be our number one example. And he says, this is what's going on. Verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. You've left your mark as an example. And friends, that's what we need to do with our children, right? Like if you're married and you've got kids, you want to impress upon them what it means to really know Jesus. Even in all your failures, let them see you're clinging to the Savior. I mean, I, I've tried to do this with my kids. I try to be more of a positive example than a negative example. And I think I'm, I'm pretty close. I might be just a little bit more on the positive side, but I really I want my kids to know what it means to know Jesus, to be an example. But this is what takes place in college campuses. This is what takes place in offices. In our church, you give people an example. This is what it looks like. And when you fail, you just keep holding on to Jesus and the cross, and you're forgiven. And you show them what maturity looks like, and it takes place. And so he's saying, you know what? This is reverberating throughout the entire Roman Empire. It's like an enthusiastic Christianity becomes contagious, and people see it. And those you're investing in begin to influence others. It's like a ripple in a pool. You throw the rock, and the rock goes, but there's this centrifugal. concentric circles that keep going out and just going farther and farther, that's what's going on in the Roman Empire. They believe in Jesus, and Paul is saying, I'm hearing about it. Not just from fellow Christians. We're talking about just tradesmen. There is something going on in Thessalonica, and it has a lot to do with Jesus and his followers. Friends, that's how the ministry of multiplication takes place. You see, we're not intended to become the terminal point of blessing. We're to be a conduit. We are designed by God to pass on the faith to others. This is where life gets really exciting. It is this kind of ministry. But that happens when your personal faith goes public, when your disciples, those you're discipling, begin to develop, and when those you're investing in begin to influence others. I think many of you are familiar with Lee Strobel. Uh, He co-authored a book called The Unexpected Adventure. And in this book, he, he writes of a situation where he is flying back to Chicago. They're going to fly into Midway. He's sitting next to an Indian gentleman um, who is now living in Chicago. He's an engineer. And they're having bad weather. And this, this Indian fellow is explaining that, well, when we land in Midway, I'm going to take a bus from Midway to O'Hare Airport. And then my pregnant wife and the two little kids who live in a distant suburb, they're going to come and pick me up. You know, and Strobel's like, listen to this. Like, nah, you know what? I got a car at Midway Airport. I'll tell you what. I'm, I'm just going to drive you home. Like, the guy was like, really? You're, you're going to drive me home? So, you know, he can't, he's just kind of blown away by this kindness of this stranger, this guy that he meets in the plane. And so while they're driving, uh, he asks him, like, why are you doing this? And Lee Strobel said this. Well, Has anybody ever done something so kind for you that it makes you want to pass a kindness along to someone else? Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. And then Strobel said this, "Well, Well, Jesus Christ has done something incredibly kind for me. And then with that, he began to explain the gospel of grace, 
how we, the undeserving, have received God's mercy and grace, forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. And he explains that faith in him leads to life eternal and forgiveness. And he explains this to this gentleman while he's driving him home in the snowstorm to get into his house. And when he drops him off at his house in this distant suburb, this Indian fellow said this, you know, I'm going to have to do some thinking about all of this. And Strobel said this, There is no doubt in my mind my words about Jesus registered with him because he experienced the love of Jesus through my practical deed of giving him a ride through the storm. Friends, that's how ministry multiplies. When our personal faith goes public, when those we're discipling begin to develop, and when those we're investing in begin to influence others. In fact, look at verses 9 and 10, where they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Friends, ministry multiplies when our love for Jesus is greater than our fears and the focus of our lives. This morning, when you sat down, uh, if you came in when it was dark and we were singing worship songs, you sat on this. Otherwise, you picked it up. It's a domino. And I want you to take this domino home. Because I want you to be thinking about the divine domino effect. And I'd like you to ask, who are some of the people that touched your life with the gospel? Who helped you really grow in Christ? Who overcame their fears because of their love of Jesus and actually talked to you about Christ? And they leaned into you. And then I ask you, who are the people you are influencing with the gospel? Who are you investing in to help them develop as a fully devoted follower of Christ? You see, ministry multiplies when our love for Jesus is greater than our fears and the focus of our lives.